So this is the uh, last of the series that I've been doing on the sacraments. Um, four sermons on baptism, four now with this Sunday, four on the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. I've had fun kind of looking at this. I hope it's been good for you. I'm going to continue this um, in Sunday school on, um, in the fall and uh, go ever deeper, uh, just, just uh, diving into um, uh, these, these primary symbols of the Christian faith is really critically important, I think, uh, especially during this transition period. As I've said before, there's, uh, there's uh, three, three marks of the church. You can tell it's a church, and actually probably two for some, the church universal, that is a font and a table, and for us Protestants, you add the pulpit, because we think it important to interpret the font and the table. So the interpretation of it becomes very important to us, and that's kind of what I've been trying to do um, this summer. And the last three weeks I've taken in succession um, the very first reference to the institution of the, of the Lord's Supper uh, in Paul, and last week the first in the Synoptic Gospels, meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the related Gospels. And now the last, John, the... Um, uh, the gospel that uh, most scholars think it probably occurred somewhere in the 90s, um, and, um, and it's different than the other, the synoptic gospels, and different in all kinds of wonderful and good ways, and the rich imagery of our in and around Eucharist are in this gospel. Um, this text from John um, 6 is, is, um, is an interesting text. It may seem odd on first hearing, so I just, I just invite your you're attentive listening to this text. Uh, our second lesson, um, John chapter 6, verses 48 through 58. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The religious authorities then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this person give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of his blood, you will have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. This is the word of the Lord. The Gospel of John has no institution of the Lord's Supper. Instead, it's foot washing for John. 
Interesting. But in the backdrop, you can hear these deep, deep Eucharistic imagery. The first lesson, and in this second lesson, uh, from which I think some probably felt that Christians were cannibalistic or something like this, maybe something like that. But I think it's symbolism, of course. It is symbolism for John. Uh, we'll get to that in a moment. But first, uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You abide in me and I abide in you. You will bear much fruit. These are images that I bring up as often as I can when, when we do communion. I think it's deep and, and broad. And it's very interesting that these happen towards the end of the first century, the last real images we get of Eucharist um, in the first century um, and in the gospel, in the canonical gospels. It's the, it's the, it's the richest imagery. And, and it complements the other images of, of, of the church which is interesting. The vine and the branches really complement the other images because the other images are construction images. They're, they're talking about cornerstones and things like that and buildings and, and things like that. And as Raymond Brown, uh, the eminent uh, uh, biblical scholar, uh, said uh, that the, uh, the images of the church that uh, in, in terms of construction are very limited, right? And so what you have here is this deep organic kind of stuff it's like the church is, 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 is or, uh, an organic reality, a living reality. The vine and the branches is such a powerful notion. And the three things that I think are really important to say about the vine and the branches and abiding, which is really key for John's gospel, abiding in Jesus and Jesus abiding in us. Those are really the key images, and it occurs over and over and over again in John, just in case we might not get it. It occurs over and over, this powerful image, especially of the vine and the branches. And, and the first thing to notice is what Galo Day says, a, a preeminent John scholar says about it, and there's, there's no hierarchies in John's notion of the church, because it's a vine and branches. They're intertwined, one with the other. So there's no uh, uh, elder branch on top of other branches. There's no deacon branch on top of other others. I mean, it's not that deacons and elders aren't important. They're just intertwined. It's all intertwined. There's no male branch, a white male branch, or any other kind of male branch over any other uh, 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 gender. There is, there is no class branch over other branches. It's all intertwined. It's all beautifully intertwined in, in this wonderful image. There's no hierarchies, in other words, in the church. Now let's just ponder that. Ponder that deeply as we think about Presbyterian church, as we think about Second Presbyterian church during this, during this transition period. That probably is one of the key images that we need to have in mind. That, there's, uh, that we're not trying to put any one people, any one person, any one office, anything else. It's all intertwined. It's really, it's really akin to uh, what Paul says about the body of Christ. And that is, is you know, that, that every function is really critically important. You can't, throw, you can't throw anything out. You really can't do that in the church. It's really, really important. And the other, the other piece is, 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 is very, very, very organic. It's very, very organic. John says something very interesting. 36 times, uh, John says, and, and the translation of it is, doesn't quite capture it. It says, you must believe in me. 
You must believe in me. The translation is more like believing into. Believing into. And that's where we get this whole notion of abiding. So for John's gospel, there's really no such things as orthodoxy. That is right belief. It's more like believing into which is right practice. Liberation theologians talk about this. It's right practice. It's right doing. It used to drive me nuts, I must tell you, uh, new members classes. I love new members classes. But, I mean, uh, but new members classes in my former church was, was the time where they wanted to say, okay, what do Presbyterians believe? And inevitably, we always got to predestination. Do you believe that there are some eternally damned and some eternally saved and some, some such thing? And I didn't want to talk about that. You know, I'd say, you know, let's just have a cup of coffee and talk about it. It's one of the worst things I think probably Calvin ever came up with, frankly. You know, and I'll just tell you that right off from the bat. But, I mean, they wanted to talk about it. They wanted to talk about the Trinity. They wanted to talk about that, all this stuff. And I want to say, look, look at what we do. <laughs> it's more important. If I had it to do all again, I'd say, how did communion affect us? How did our baptism affect what we, what we do and what we are? And what, what, what do we do about our faith? That's the most critical thing. And I think that's the most critical thing for John's gospel. As, as you, uh, many of you know, I'm, um, I'm attempting to be a, a classical guitar player, and attempting is the operative word here. It's just I'm terrible. But, you know, I totally love it. Because, you know, what my teacher says to me is every, 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 every time we have a lesson, he says, Roger, how was your practice? That's what he's consumed with. How did you practice? And then he says, this lesson is really about informing your practice. So whatever, whatever fruit comes from this, and I, I don't, I'm sure there's not going to be any performance. I hope you don't want that, by the way. There's not going to be any grand performance. It's really the practicing of it. It's really being kind of involved in it. It's, it's getting, there, there's a very interesting thing that goes on with, with an instrument, if you get a complicated piece between your right and your left hand, it's a really interesting thing. You start it very slow on the metronome, and then you work with it, and then you pull up the speed just a little bit. And in three, and in three days, your brain and your muscles in your body will connect to that pattern. It's a fascinating process. I mean, I just love playing the guitar if for that alone that something complicated can be achieved in three days. So, of course, you have to extend it be well beyond that, but the point is that it's all about the practice. It's not so much perfection because there's not going to ever be, not for me, not, and, and I don't know of a classical guitar player, some of, the most, some of the most eminent classical guitar players say perfection is not possible. Pepe Romero, who is likely one of the top two or three classical guitar players in the world was doing a, um, a, um, a master class once, and, and, and he actually said there is no such thing as perfection. And then at another point in the, uh, in the, in the, in the master class, he said, you know, you know what we are? We are practicers. We are practicers. And for John, I think that's who we are. We are practicers of the Christian faith. We're never going to completely get there. But there is a process that we go through that is in very intentional 
about practicing the faith. The third thing about the vine and the branches, and by the way, that could be extended. If I, I don't know much about creating wine, but you have to attend divines, don't you? That's the practice of it, okay? Third thing, when Jesus says, I am, and he says it a whole bunch, even in the, in, in the text that we've got uh, today, and throughout the Gospel of John, he says it a lot. That's not just any old I am. That is the I am of the revelation of the divine name to Moses. When Moses, before the burning bush, was called to go to Pharaoh and to preach, let my people go, uh, Moses uh, uh, rightly said, uh, what is your name? And God responds, I am that I am. Could be translated, I will be that I will be. Could also be translated, I was that I was. It's a contraction of the verb to be. And that's why the great theologian Paul Tillich said the most literal thing you can say about God is being itself. Elizabeth Johnson, a, a really wonderful Catholic feminist uh, theologian, uh, wrote a book that was responding to Thomas Aquinas. She's Catholic. She's responding to Thomas Aquinas, who said that God is literally he who is. Well, her book was She Who Is. <laughs> Interesting image. And then she went further than that. She said, she said God is sheer livingness. The sheer livingness in all that is. I think that captures beautifully what John is trying to get at with who God is. When Jesus said, I came to give you life and life in abundance, he wasn't talking about eternal life, although eternal life might be included. He's talking about right here now, right here now. That's why, that's why Jesus made all that wine in the first scene in John's gospel. Do you know how much wine he made? You know, what was it, five, six containers, and they were all gallons, and they were the best wine that they ever drank? That is an image for us of what, what God desires for our life together. It's this powerful, powerful, sheer livingness of abundance that occurs when we abide in, 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 in Jesus and Jesus abides in us because if we abide in Jesus and Jesus abides in us, then we abide in God and God abides in us. It's this beautifully wonderful thing that happens. Um, we're heading off and going hiking tomorrow. We're going to the high country in Colorado. And that reminds me of a hiking trip that we took some years ago in the Grand Tetons National Park. Uh, wonderful place to go hike. Um, and our legs were tired, and we decided to take a uh, raft trip down the Snake River, which was totally wonderful because the Snake River, you can see this, this iconic, the, the iconic uh, Tetons off in the background of the Snake River. And we were going down the Snake River. The tour guide spotted a bull moose, a huge, huge bull moose sitting by the river. And he was just sitting there. And, and, and he, he looked like he was chewing, right? And so we asked the tour guide, what, 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 what is he doing? He says, well, bull mooses, you see, any moose, what they'll do is they'll take a lot of leaves and they'll shove them into their cheeks. And then they'll lay down and they'll just sit there and they'll chew and they'll chomp and they'll chew and they'll chomp. And it was so loud that when we went right by that moose, we could literally hear the moose chomping. 
Now, I don't know what your mother's told you about this, but my mother said, do not eat with your mouth open, and I don't want to hear you chomping, but John has something else in mind for that, because when John, Jesus says in John, if you eat my flesh, that's not any old word for eat, that's the chomp. <laughs> that's the chomp and chew. And that's just like this moose sitting by the river, chomping and chewing and taking, ingesting ingesting a reality into his or her life. Don't you see, this is the image that, that John wants to communicate, that Jesus in John wants to communicate. How we take Jesus' life in us is a symbolic eating. It's just chomping, pondering his life, practicing the faith by chewing. Norman Wurzbach calls it eating Jesus. That's the title of the sermon. And that's what we do at communion. It's a powerful thing that we do. Wurzba also has a, has a wonderful reflection on bread as we, as we ponder communion. Uh, it's, it's interesting to ponder bread and where it comes from, how it's produced, because that's critical. If you're really going to eat and chomp and chew something, we're going to be eating and chomping and chewing bread, okay? And so it's really interesting to ponder that. And he says we've got to connect, do all, make all the interconnections with the bread that we eat. Who made it? Who produced it? How did they view the land? Did they do it ecologically? Did they make a living wage? All those questions need to be asked. Norman goes as far as to say, we should not eat mindlessly. We should never eat mindlessly. Because we, if we eat simply as consumers, and most of us do, frankly, I do, then we might be eating in exploitative ways because we're not pondering the deeper connections between food, the people who produced it, and the earth itself. That's all happening as we chomp on Jesus because Jesus was the Word of God incarnate. And the word for incarnation there is just not in human flesh. It's really important to say that for John's Gospel. Not just human flesh, it's all flesh. It's the flesh of squirrels. It's the flesh of moose. It's the flesh of all creation. The incarnation connects us deeply, as the bread should connect us deeply to the divine, to the earth in which it exists, to one another, to ourselves, to the love of God and the sheer livingness, the sheer livingness of the reality of God that has called us into life and wants us to live a life of abundance, not just for us, but for all of God's creation, God's good creation, for all of it. Let us pray. Oh God, for your marvelous gift of bread and cup, and cup, the gifts that come out of your creation, help us to ponder here that we are um, ingesting the reality of your word made flesh. Your word made a mammal. Your word made creation. Help us to ponder deeply who Jesus was as 
he interconnected deeply with, with people that were marginalized in this creation. Because your sure livingness is not just for one, it's for all. Help us to ponder the vine and the branches and the interconnectedness of all of our lives with one another and how we are interdependent, interrelated with one another. Help us to ponder deeply, O oh God, the sheer living abundance that you seek for us all. In Christ's name, amen.